Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. November 9th, 2023, the was that a great or terrible night for Biden edition? I'm David Plotz of CityCast at home in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine at Yale University is at home in New Haven. Hello, at home, Emily. Hello. John Dickerson of CBS Primetime is at home in New York City. Hello, at home, John. Yeah, hi. Hello, Emily. Hi, David. Cheerio. This week on the GabFest, Democrats won most of the important races in the off-off-year election. Why did they thrive? Is Glenn Youngkin toast? Then another dreadful poll for President Biden. Why is he in such big trouble and can he do anything to turn it around for 2024? And then the Supreme Court found the one gun law that it will uphold. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Also, a reminder, we have a conundrum show coming up that we're hoping to do live. In the meantime, we still need your 2023 conundrums. You've gotten us off to a great start. Uh, some, some conundrums you've sent us already, which maybe we'll discuss. Is it okay to put your trash in someone else's garbage can if you don't have space no. on your own? We Absolutely don't, not. Don't just leave it. Leave it. Leave it. Wow. <laughs> this one, which is like a, my idea of horror, would you rather be trapped on a desert island with Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, then it was a bad choice. We see Roman Romans all over Europe. What will people 25 years from now see of America today? Those are great conundrums. Those are fantastic. Oh, Those my God. Great. That's a whole show. Yeah. So anyway, please send us your conundrum by going to slate.com slash conundrum or slate.com slash conundrums, whichever you like. And uh, entering it, and we look forward to to reading them and talking about them in December. Tuesday's election night went about as well for Democrats as they could have hoped. They took back the Virginia State House, held the state Senate, thus denying Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin the friendly legislature he desperately wanted. Democrat Andy Bashir was reelected as Kentucky governor in a pretty red state. Voters protected abortion and legalized marijuana by ballot measure in Ohio, which is another victory for the left. The only real cloud on the horizon was failing to defeat a Republican governor in Mississippi. So uh, I live in D.C., which means I've been beset with TV ads for these Virginia House and Senate races for weeks. And I know why Democrats won, because they painted Republicans as MAGA extremists seeking to ban abortion and put doctors in prison. Abortion rights, Emily, seemed like the dominant issue for Democrats this cycle, at least in Virginia and, of course, in Ohio, and it's kind of even in Kentucky. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to see that when voters are asked to directly decide this issue, they are opting to, to protect abortion so far, particularly in states where there is a pretty stark choice. So Ohio had legal abortion until 22 weeks, but it also had a six-week ban on the books that was being appealed to the conservative Ohio Supreme Court. And so the choice here for voters is do you want very little access to abortion or do you want broad access? And they chose broad access. It was um, the measure passed by more than 56%. That percentage also means it was very significant that Ohio voters rejected a measure that Republicans put on the ballot in August that would have raised the threshold for passing this measure and other measures to 60%. So that's notable. And the other thing that was interesting is that the um, opponents of abortion tried some different strategies this time. 
Um, they pushed really hard on the idea that parental rights were at stake, even though there was nothing in the abortion rights measure that talked about parental rights. And then also the Secretary of State and the Ohio Ballot Board, which is controlled by Republicans, rewrote the language that voters saw when they actually were looking at the amendment um, in front of them, like on the ballot. And they made a number of changes. The most significant one was to play, replace the word fetus with unborn child. And so it was interesting to see that that kind of very anti-abortion rhetoric did not have the intended effect and the measure passed anyway. And John, also Virginia Republicans tried to stake out a wholly different kind of position. And that, although I've seen different reports on this, it just does seem like that that didn't really hurt them at the ballot box. They actually did relatively well and compared to where they had been um, but they still didn't win the, the elections. They didn't do as well as they needed to. One of the hopes for Republicans in Virginia was that um, by reframing or trying to reframe abortion, and Emily, step in and correct me if I'm wrong here, because the language is super important, by Youngkin reframing um, his abortion policy as a 15-week ban that was common sense um, and that was not extreme the way... Um, you know, Democrats wanted. They tried to shift the the way the party talked about um, abortion, get it away from total bans, get it away from national bans, um, and try to move the, the turf onto um, the extremism of um, the Democrats. And so it was a test about whether they could a change the language and whether somebody who was non MAGA affiliated. Um, and we should talk about the. The sort of fantasy that that surrounded Glenn Youngkin in in a number of ways, but this was one part of it, was that the governor of Virginia, a Republican who was not closely associated with Donald Trump, could be the vehicle for reframing abortion, and that that could then be a template for getting out from under this problem for Republicans. None of that worked, and that's interesting going forward because not only does it say something about Glenn Youngkin, but it says something about the durability of this issue. And the difficulty Republicans are having and and the increasing difficulty they're going to have because they're going to have a huge fight right now <clears throat> about what to do about the issue. One question about abortion is whether it whether Democrats can keep hitting the abortion issue button going forward um, and in what conditions they can do that. And then the other is whether Republicans can do anything to fix the problem their party clearly has on that issue uh, for the next election. I mean, what was interesting, again, because I saw all these messages, is that so Youngkin was pushing this 15-week uh, ban with exceptions for rape, incest, life of the mother, sensible policy. But if you looked at the, the Democratic ads, everyone was targeted at a candidate. Uh, every, every, every ad that I saw about abortion was framing the candidate as somebody who was opposed to abortion in all circumstances, because all of them had signed. Every conservative Republican has at some point signed a pledge saying they will you know, fight to get rid of abortion in all circumstances. And Democrats just put that up. So it didn't even matter that Youngkin was pushing that 15 week because you just said, oh, this candidate wants to get rid of it all the time and wants to put send your doctor to jail. Uh, and I thought that was pretty effective, even though that what what Youngkin wanted was not what they were fighting him on. Yeah. And it is the party position. I mean, I, not that party platforms right. mean anything anymore, but it is the party position and it is the position of the Speaker of the House and and a major constituency in the in the party. There's a very funny moment when Sean Hannity, in exasperation, he said, you know, Democrats are trying to make it feel like Republicans want to get rid of abortion in all instances. <laughs> I mean, it's the party position. Um, so that, you know, they may want to fix it. 
Sean Hannity at one point wanted to fix the, de- the Republican Party's position on immigration and support comprehensive immigration reform, a position he's since moved away from. But while individual Republicans may have different positions, there are, you know, the driving um, force within the party has been um, that stronger position. Yeah, I mean, there's a disconnect here. The anti-abortion organizations, the people who work on this, they want no abortion under any circumstances. They deeply feel like this is immoral and in some cases a religious issue. They say that they want to make abortion unthinkable. And that is just really different from where most Americans are when you look at the polls on this. Before the end of Roe, it was possible to kind of imagine that maybe that was not the case. But the polls have shifted now that there are actually states that are banning abortion and there's something actually at risk and at stake. And so the Republicans have a real problem. I mean, a third of Republicans in Ohio support abortion rights. But abortion rights isn't always on the ballot. Of course not. And Republicans need to make sure, they need to work to make sure abortion rights is on the ballot as infrequently as possible. Yes. Um, And when you have candidate races, it's different. And that's part of why you're analyzing the Yunkin issue in a different way, because state legislative races obviously have a whole basket of issues at stake. Um, Who is Andy Bashir, and why does he win when other red state Democrats cannot really win anymore, at least not statewide. The Andy Bashir situation is really interesting because he is a very popular Democratic governor. So on the one hand, he he really associated his opponent with his opponent's position on abortion rights. So in one sense, he just ran the same play. Um, but he basically was able to talk up Biden policies without ever, without ever mentioning Biden's name. He was able to successfully keep it local and keep this from turning into a national um, uh, election or a referendum on Biden, which would have been really hard to do anyway. But uh, he's also just extremely popular for his response to COVID, for um, the way he's handled uh, local disasters. Um, And it's a really he's a really fascinating case, not only about himself, but just about whether there are bigger groups of swing voters in certain parts of the country than than might be otherwise thought. I mean, are, are there actual lessons from Andy Bashir for Democrats broadly? Most Democrats are not getting elected in in districts with, where they have a lot of Republican voters. They're not having to govern in a place where they're where they're at risk of losing to a Republican. There are very few there there are very few Democrats who are leading large red reddish areas. So does this lesson apply to somebody who is, you know, the governor of Vermont or something too? Well, governor of Vermont wouldn't have the same challenges. So the question is, are there, could it have been used, you know, in Mississippi, different, different situation. You had an incumbent Republican governor there. Could it help Sherrod Brown next year running, running as an incumbent um, for Senate in Ohio? I don't know. I mean, governors can do things. Governors play a different role in people's lives than senators do. And it's harder to nationalize a governor's race than it is a senator's race. Um, and so that, I don't know. I mean, Brown has a real real strong ties to Ohio um, and and has his own, you know, I mean, the tester race will, will test this, whether these um, longtime senators who have real strengths in their states aren't, aren't a creation of a national movement, but have a real um, connection to their state, whether they can de-link themselves. That's always... A question. I think it's a little easier for governors, and governors get to take action and do things in a way that senators sometimes don't because because of the way 
um, the way Congress works. Yeah, I mean, it's it is interesting how often you have a governor of a state uh, which is slightly to the right or to the left of them, and and go- governing from the from the out party who becomes a national darling. You see that you saw that with Larry Hogan. You saw it with with Mitt Romney. Uh, you see it with Glenn Youngkin. Uh, you see it with Bashir. And and even going back to Bill Clinton, I mean, Arkansas was a Democratic state there then, but it was a conservative Democratic state. It was a Democratic state where it was the old kind of Democrat. And it's not a fantasia of American life, but it's a persistent theme is find the governor who's governing a state where where the, poli- the, the, the people are not aligned with him politically or not aligned with his party. And that's your next president or that's your next national person. But I don't even know if that's actually true. One of the things that's interesting, and I don't think you can extrapolate anything from it, but it, it, but one of the things we'll talk about when we talk about the Biden poll is, given that the polling suggests that Joe Biden, Joe Biden himself, has a problem, and that that it's distinct from his party's challenges, um, which the Democratic Party seems to be able to overcome, the significant effort to try to c- connect Bashir with Biden failed. The point being, if if Biden is toxic it should have been a little easier to do that. And so it gives us maybe some indication of the toxicity or the the contours of Biden's challenge and Biden as a problem for his party, distinct for Biden as a problem for himself. I, I don't want to leave without uh, touching on a point that I saw made by Matt Iglesias, but also I think made by others, which is that it now seems as though high information, high turnout voters are Democrats and that's what's driving success in off-year elections. Why has that happened? And what is it? What's the significance of that? I mean, I think what's interesting about this is that in all the fights we had over like voter ID and other kinds of restrictions, Democrats talked themselves into the idea that the more turnout, the better for Democrats. And that has actually not turned out to be really the case. Um, and instead, people who are highly engaged and showing up in these off-year elections, I think probably they're also like more educated. And we have so much polarization between the parties along the lines of who's college educated and who's not, that then that would... Um, go to the benefit of Democrats in a way that was kind of out of sync with the image that the party had of itself of representing a lot of low income people. So then if you make turnout easier, you're going to get other people to the polls who wouldn't normally be there. Those can still be important values, but they don't seem to be um, tracking with uh, increasing the Democratic margin the way um, I feel like the rhetoric kind of imagined several years ago. The um, political scientist from Michigan State, Matt Grossman, makes this makes this this connection with college educated voters voting more for Democrats and therefore being more tuned in and voting more in off years. And in the Times poll, I believe it's true that Biden is as poorly as he's doing is doing better with voters who voted. Let me make sure I get this right. Who voted in the midterms in 2022 than the voters who didn't. So that is to say the intensely focused on politics voters um, the kind of core of his party rather than the bigger, broader swath of his party. I'm looking forward to uh, expansive Republican motor voter legislation and <laughs> Democrats, Democrats prosecuting voter fraud, uh, 
viciously in Wisconsin. Can I, one other thing that, that, that I forgot to mention about Bashir, because it came up with, uh, when I talked to Josh Shapiro, who was the governor of Pennsylvania and who benefited from fixing the, the road I-95 much faster than anybody expected, which is, man, and you, David, I feel like have said this many, many times over the years, infrastructure, getting stuff done where you can move things around matters. And Bashir um, focused a lot on infrastructure and also teacher salaries. Again, this focus on close to home, um, where people in polls tend to show that they actually feel more, um, they feel better about life than they do their national life and the, and the direction of the country. Um, so he benefits from that disconnect. People are willing to give wins to politicians who are closer to them if those politicians deserve them. Whereas the national picture, um, maybe people have a much difficult, more difficult time recognizing um, anything going well. Right. I mean, I go back to that point that David Leonhardt made with us last week, which is that if you look at how long it takes to get from a place, one place to another, it takes more time in 2023 than it did in 1968 for most kinds of transit. And if you ride the Amtrak a cell train from New York to Washington, you will experience what train travel was like in the mid 18th century um, because it's the, the track with so worse bad. food and the internet will not work periodically. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. But that's, that's, that's like very mid 18th century. The, exactly right. The internet, <laughs> the internet in 1783 was faster on the train routes than you know, the one. On you know, the I think we've gone like 17 years on the show, and no one has ever made the 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 kind of class limousine liberal mistake of talking about the Acela and making complaints about the Acela. And, and now, now we've, we've reached it. it. We've, we've now we've, done it. You know, we've well, gone, actually, we've walked through that door. I was going to complain about Metro North, the commuter rail that's that goes okay. from. That's, yeah, that's okay. Also but slower. The Acela is not not legit. Okay, I'm going to stop it there so we don't further embarrass ourselves. I do want to thank, however, our Slate Plus listeners. You, you've listened a long time and not heard us talking about the Acela. And uh, because you've listened for so long and because you've supported us through Slate Plus, we've been able to keep going. And you get a lot of great stuff if you're a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments, discounts on live shows, uh, you get no hitting the paywall on the Slate site. And this week, you'll get a segment where we're going to talk about the Trump civil fraud trial in New York City. So if you're a member, thank you. Enjoy it. If you're not a member, go to Slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. There will be no Acela content in that. So I do not watch horror movies. And one of the and I also don't watch m- any popular culture where children are in danger and I also don't look at polls that make me feel sick. So I confess that I found it, I, because I'm a good colleague of yours, I did manage to look at the New York Times Siena poll of key states a year out from the presidential election. But the headline results, the results were so depressing and so dire. And they came on top of a, a series of bad polling results for Biden. And it just looks awful for Biden. It looks awful. John, please summarize this absolutely grim poll if you are a Democrat, I should note. Very exciting if you're a Trump supporter or a Republican. So the poll finds that in um, six of the key uh, battleground states, some of them are swing states, some of them aren't. We can talk about that later. But in six of the key battleground states, Trump has a meaningful lead a year out. Meaningful means it's outside of the, the margin of error. Um, and these results are not because Trump is getting stronger, really. They're a they're really the result of Biden's 
uh, growing weakness. His two biggest problems and the reason this is a, and by the way, I'll just, uh, the states I should say are Wisconsin, Nevada, Pennsylvania, um, Michigan, Georgia, and Arizona. Um, did I get that right? Um, five of those six states flipped from Donald Trump to Joe Biden from 16 to 20. So those would be swing states, although I prefer to call them all battleground states. Nevada lost, Trump lost twice, um, but he's uh, he's ahead in the polls there. The polls find essentially that Biden has trouble within his base with younger voters, voters of color. He also, um, two of his biggest problems are age um, and the economy. And the reason that makes people feel so nervous who are supporters of his or who would not like Donald Trump to be elected is that those are two very, very hard things to fix. Um, age, you can't fix at all. And the economy, while, um, and we should talk about this, there's a real disconnect between actual economic numbers and people's opinions about the economy. It's very hard to tell people not to feel what they're feeling. And the numbers in some of these states on who do you trust on the economy for Donald Trump are upwards of 20 points of voters saying they trust uh, Trump over Biden. So um, could you do the magic to get people to change that position, which is another reason people feel um, it, this is a, a tough poll for Democrats. The alternative is that the weaknesses in Democratic constituencies, young men, black voters, Latinos, that they'll come back once they um, see all the great things Joe Biden has done. This is the Democratic case. Um, and also once they learn about the alternative, and this is particularly true of young voters, the alternative both in terms of Donald Trump, but also if you watch the, the Republican debate on Wednesday night and heard Republican candidates talking about their climate, their energy policy, if you're a young voter, and particularly like a kind of a Bernie Sanders young Democratic voter, and you're disaffected with Joe Biden, and you hear what the Republican Party wants in terms of energy policy, um, it is likely to be very, very opposite to your policy preferences. The Democratic case goes that once all those voters learn those things, they will come back home to Biden um, and they will be more revolted by Donald Trump. There was not so much negative partisanship in this poll um, as there might be in an actual election. I mean, that goes with one of my theories about Joe Biden, which is that people get they're not excited about him, but they don't have like viscerally furious feelings. I don't think I have a lot of evidence for my about this. I don't think it's something that posters that. ask, but it's just my gut feeling, which I will put out there, which which goes with the idea that he could win these voters back. Yeah, although they do think he's doddering. Yeah, yeah that's a problem. I mean, that is one of the things that, that Nate Cohen made when he uh, points he made when he was talking about this poll is that actually the attributes inside of Biden that used to actually be the reason people were voting for him. Questions about temperament and whether, like, those have all dropped. And that interests me as well, because age, one understands. Questions about mental sharpness, you can understand how people will could come to those conclusions. But um, the temperament question, I mean, it's not like he's gone flying off the handle. I, you, At all. I mean, obviously, people don't have extra precise um, renditions of what these words mean. Yeah, I sort of feel like you could go from age and mental acuity into temperament pretty yeah. easily without, there sure. is no evidence of him flying off the handle. We haven't seen all that much of him. He's been, I mean, as far as I can tell, he seems like he's been himself perfectly. But I'm not sure that, that that steady pair of hands quality, which people liked in 2020, is so valuable. People are like, well, it was a steady pair of hands, but man, there was so much inflation and we're at war everywhere, and there's still immigrants pouring over the border. Who cares? It's time for change. We are not at war everywhere. The United States. The world there is, is at war, war ever. Right. The world is at war. Everywhere. No, I think you, I think you've made an imp important point, which is it's you can't slice the bologna too thin. Um, and so a general disaffection with the president filters out through 
a variety of different metrics and doesn't necessarily correlate to a, somebody sitting down and going, now let me think about presidential temperament. What do I mean by that? And does the, do the facts really match my conception of this? Emily, I think the, the interesting numbers in, in this poll, which seem to track what appears to be happening in the world, is that a much larger number of black voters are considering voting for Trump than voted for him before or than have ever voted for a Republican presidential candidate post-civil rights movement. Huge percentage of Hispanic voters. To me, it seems manifestly good that there be a diverse Republican party. I would wish it was not a diverse Republican party that was united behind um, a monstrous conservative populist of the Trump sort. But it seems nice that they're, that that the parties have to compete for voters, that people just don't sort by their race. Do you have a sense about why Black and Hispanic voters in particular, and I think Asian American voters too, are, are breaking towards Republicans? I mean, we should say it's not a majority of Black voters. No. It's just more than 20, before. 22%. Right, right. It's just f- given that the Black vote has been so much like 90% Democratic. And I think it was like half of um, Latino voters overall. I think that people don't like having their votes taken for granted. And that when you vote repeatedly for the same party and you feel like your life isn't getting better, that that's deflating and things like inflation really hit people who don't have lots of money. Um, and you know, you have disproportionate poverty among black and Hispanic voters. So maybe that's part of what's going on. I also have seen some very clever social media directed specifically at Latino voters from the Trump side, like videos on TikTok that just seem like they're pretty good. Like they're kind of meant to go viral. They seem like they're the kind of rappers you would not imagine supporting Trump being like totally down for Trump and kind of making it subversively hip to be in that position. And I wonder if that's having some effect on younger voters. One of the figures that's kind of striking on the younger voter front is that, um, and this comes from, I think this is Daniel uh, Cox's analysis in AEI, but Among all registered voters in all the battleground states who are under age 30, Trump and Biden are essentially tied in the New York Times Siena poll. But when you look at those voters who just who are most likely to vote, Biden has a six point lead. But that's way worse than his 26 point margin he had with that same group nationally in 2020. And I think part some of what's behind that maybe is you look at the leaders above you if you're a young person and you think, man, they're all old and they have no connection to my life. And and this is a point Daniel Cox made is that he pointed to the Pew t- uh, topography survey. And there's the a group that Pew identifies as the outside left, which is basically think of them as the Sanders voters. They are liberal. They don't like Republicans, but they are not institutionalists. In fact, um, they view anybody who kind of wants to maintain the institutions as a way to um, achieve progressive priorities. It just doesn't get doesn't get the trick. Like, that person is not interesting to them. They don't think, even if they share the same policy goals, they don't think somebody who believes the institutions are fit for those to, for bringing those goals about is a person worth supporting. And so they might just bail on the whole process. Oh, God. We, um, we've talked actually a little bit less about Trump than you would normally expect us to have talked so far. And, and that's, I think, one of the point of these polls is that Trump is, a, is the candidate who is they are polling Biden against and that's who the head-to-head matchup is. But Trump has been not that visible to the world. Uh, the, the active Biden versus Trump campaign is not going on. Also, Trump's criminal trials have not started or completed yet. And I wonder, John, there was a little bit of evidence in the polling that suggests, oh, if Trump is criminally convicted, that would be 
quite damaging for him in the polls. And there's certainly the the kind of intuitive sense that that I have that the more Trump is is front and center with people, the more they are reminded of of the kind of awfulness and chaos and cruelty and destructiveness of him, and thus less likely to vote for him. But that could just be wishful thinking on my part. No, I think it's not impossible. I think I mean here's another thing that there's no particular evidence for, but that strikes me is that. I wonder if he's convicted, whether people will think it's a national embarrassment to vote for a president who is convicted, like just the the kind of a kind of patriotic muscle will kick in and say, we cannot as an like as Americans, it's sort of like it made me think of the, the Italians, the way they felt about Berlusconi. It was just like, this is just gone beyond like you can't. You can't elect a per- person who's been convicted, you know, assuming people think the conviction is is um, merited, which I think the polls show that at least they're very open to that possibility, given what they think about Trump and about the facts of these various cases. Um, so I don't think it's crazy. I think also if you look at it's not just reminding people about what the former president did, but like nobody's really polled what he said he will do. Um, and uh, you start. I think if you start talking about that, um, there's a possibility for things to, to significantly change. One other thing I would say about younger voters is that there's some evidence in the polling um, that they have no idea what Biden has done. Like they're just not they're just not paying any attention. And in fact, they're wrong about some of the things they think that they're basically voting like on vibes. And can you change that? I don't know. I mean, that's one of the great um, questions that Biden has to face and that is a real challenge for him is, first of all, what's the actual problem? It doesn't seem to be a party problem. The party's doing pretty well. So what's Biden's actual problem and can he fix it? And what if it's just that he's old? Yeah. So it does seem that election day this year showed that Democrats won despite Biden. And therefore, the if you were a, a party poobah, it might make you think, man, we do urgently need to consider an alternative. We're good on the issues. We just have this leader who's not there. Is the idea of an alternative just dead duck? Is it is it hopeless? Or could a Newsom or Pritzker or Whitmer, abs, abs, obviously if Biden has a health problem, then that comes becomes real. But absent a health problem, could somebody and somebody who is not Kamala Harris step forward and actually assume this role? Or is it just it's just fatally flawed as a plan? It's too Rube Goldberg. It couldn't work. It, they will have flaws. And it's it's just it's just a pipe dream. Normally, I'm very skeptical about the unicorn candidate, and that's why I felt that way about Glenn Youngkin. Um, this like cockamamie plan that some Republican donors had that somehow Youngkin, when there were already approximately 712 candidates who had tried to be the anti-Trump, could somehow jump in and be the successful anti-Trump was silly. And so I have a feeling about that here too. The Democratic Party tends to have uh, a lot of voters in it who want to have their say. And if somehow some arrangement were made where a person was tapped to be the replacement for Biden, there would be a lot of voters, I think, and particularly party activists who'd be like, wait a minute, who gave you the power to tap this person, whether it's, um, you know, Newsom or or somebody else. One of the interesting things inside the New York Times poll of those six battleground states is that Kamala Harris actually does better than Biden and and basically um, uh, solves a great deal of these problems within the Democratic coalition. Um, and so that tees up something quite interesting, which is um, it would be easier in terms of a razzle dazzle play to hand off to Harris just in terms of just like logistics and and it looks reasonable because you're handing it off to your vice president than to 
pilot in or drop in the governor of California. Um, but I think there's also some um, considerable nervousness about her ability to carry out a candidacy in terms of her just raw political skill. So um, I think I generally think it's um, it's too much of a trick play. But when David Axelrod, who who knows something about politics, kind of suggests this, it made me think, huh, this isn't just kind of the donor class um, th- you know, throwing out sallies of wild opinion while they go to get another gin and tonic. Um, it w- you know, it's somebody who has actual experience running campaigns. I had a question a few minutes ago when we were talking about the slice of the left, um, the young slice of the left. Do you all think that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is having a significant effect on their viewpoints? And will that stick. I mean, on campuses right now, it's like a huge thing. And people are really, I think, having uh, taking a kind of very like binary view of the conflict that doesn't have a whole lot of historical context, I would argue. But there is a lot of very heartfelt um, sloganeering going on. The Times poll was done before, I think, the um, the conflict. So that's a, but it, I don't think it helps. Um if you look at the Republican debate on Wednesday night, and I know this isn't the way it's going to be sorted, but I mean, the, all the responses from the Republican debate were like kill. I mean, they were they were so responses in America after the day after 9-11. I mean, it was and and the reason I think that's interesting um, is that at the same time, you had some of the candidates, Ramaswamy and DeSantis and stuff saying like, well, we're not going to get in, involved in these things and spend all these money overseas. But the kind of response they were advocating for Hamas to destroy Hamas was a, you know, and then bomb Iran. So anyway, there was a real like disconnect. They were promoting bombing Iran. But my point is that if you were looking as a choice, you might not like what Biden wants to do. But the Republican position is even further to the right than Biden. But I don't think I think Emily entombed in your question, embedded in your question, I don't think is the idea that these voters are going to go to Trump. It's that they're just not going to vote. They're not going to come out for Biden. Correct. And, and they're going to be problem. mad at Biden, too, and that they see him as the enemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah you're 100 percent right about all that. Yes. So the Supreme Court seemed well positioned to block every restrictive gun law in the nation after their decision last year in the Brune case. But this court had not yet met Zaki Rahimi, one of the least sympathetic Supreme Court petitioners you could ever hope to hear from. Emily, please tell us the amazing facts about Mr. Rahimi. Mr. Rahimi. So what's at issue in this case is a civil protective order that Mr. Rahimi was subject to because he was accused of um, assaulting uh, an ex-girlfriend, including like dragging her by the hair. And then on, I think, remarkably like five times within two months, he was shooting a gun. Um, one time it was because he didn't like the service a friend of his was getting at a restaurant. So he fired a gun into the air, but also he like shot into the home of someone he had, uh, just sold drugs to. So he's really not a good poster child for second amendment, broad individual right to bear arms. Um, what happened was that after he committed some of these shootings, um, the cops came to his house and realized that he had weapons that he was not allowed to have because of the protective order. And the reason for that is that in 1994, Congress passed a law concerned about the harms of domestic and intimate partner violence that said that you could that people who are subject to protective orders cannot have 
weapons anymore. And that's the law that's at issue in this case. It's called 922G. It's a federal law. A lot of states have laws like this too, and they are basically a modern recognition of the problem of having weapons available to someone who is posing a credible threat of domestic violence because we know there is so much harm um, and danger, especially to women, that comes from that circumstance. Five times, five times more likely to be killed if by a domestic abuser who has a gun. Yeah, if there's a gun present. Exactly. And the Supreme Court has talked about the problem of domestic violence in previous cases. The problem the court has created for itself, and I think that it will solve this problem, but the problem it has created is that in its last case about gun rights, the court said that a modern gun law can only stand can only pass muster with the Second Amendment if it is in accord with our history and tradition as a nation. And the question in this case, and it's really an important one, is what that means. So the most narrow view, which is the view that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals case in siding with Zaki Rahimi, is that, well, you know, at the founding of the country, um, it was there were no laws that said that you disarmed someone because of a domestic violence threat. So you can't do it now. Um, you know, there's obviously a just huge democratic problem with that view because women could vote. I mean, we're talking about imposing a really, uh, one hopes, different um, colonialist set of values and concerns on the modern era. And so what the United States, um, what the Solicitor General was trying to argue to the court is like, we got to think about history and tradition at a much higher level of generality, that as long as you can look back and see that um, the founders and other people along the historical tradition um, disarmed people who were dangerous, you can apply that principle in this case. And this is a modern conception of dangerousness. And that's fine because we always had this idea of disarming dangerous people. I think that that view will prevail given the argument, but it's interesting to watch the court try to get out of this trap it set for itself the last time around. And Emily, you, you think they're going to find a way to write around it, which is undoubtedly the case. Um, to write, yeah. What do you mean to write around or to write around it? Right around to their- write around their the problem they've set themselves by believing that the Second Amendment is linked so um, closely to the intent and the world as it was in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, like that they'll just find a way to write, write around that and um, and say, well, subsequent events um, that they'll allow a living constitution for the purposes of of not being totally absurd. Um and by the way, one of my favorite exchanges in the in the argument was uh, when the chief justice asked Matthew Wright, who was the federal public defender, um, he said, you don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? And Wright gave an answer that's very familiar from, if you've paid attention to any of the Trump cases, where Wright's wondered, well, what does a dangerous person mean? As if that was a legitimate question to ask. Um, and, and Robert said, well, I mean, someone who's shooting, you know, at people, that's a good start. Um, and it's, uh, uh, but anyway, back to what I was saying, which is Emily, they're going to find a way to write around this. Do you, do you think though, that it provides a way to talk about this inconsistency between a constitution defined by the framers that's stuck or a living constitution for future cases? In other words, does it become a shorthand for this inconsistency? Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of larger 
question at stake, right? So there's a couple ways to think about this case. One is that the Fifth Circuit just went kind of like crazy here, right? That Zaki Rahimi is so clearly not someone who should be having a gun. There's like a common sense problem with its application of this history and tradition doctrine. And so the court is going to find a way to rein it in. But we also have the same history and tradition test um, now with regard to the 14th Amendment, um, which is like where we have pinned all our liberty rights. So same-sex marriage and abortion and the right to have birth control and um, sexual liberty, all of those cases, and this is the result of Dobbs, the opinion that um, overturned Roe versus Wade, they're also, we're also in the land of in accord with our history and tradition. And so if the court answers in this Rahimi case, oh, you know what? You can just look back for principles um, that the founders espoused, but they don't have to be like really specific. We don't have to have um, specific historical evidence of a tradition. Then they're not going to be able to do the same kind of conservative work that it looked like they were doing in Dobbs and in the previous case, right? It looked like what the conservative goal here was is to make it really hard to address modern problems um, that were not in line with traditionalist values, right? So like, think about same-sex marriage for a second. Um, Is same-sex marriage in accord with our history and tradition? Well, if you think about like whether we had legalized gay marriage in the 18th and 19th century, well, obviously the answer is no. If you think about some developing, evolving notion of equality and and liberty and the idea that like the framers cared about equality and liberty and maybe they used these majestic phrases deliberately so that they could evolve over time, well, then it's all fine. But it seemed like that was not what the conservative justices were interested in allowing. And so that's the sort of broader set of issues here. Can I make a dumb point that it was the result of only knowing a little bit, which is when we talk about the founders and the framers, you know, Jefferson believed the Constitution, at least in at least I think one of his letters, but I think he believed essentially the Constitution should be re-upped every 19 or 20 years, like zero-based budgeting for the Constitution. You have to rewrite it, which would be really interesting. I'm surprised there's not like some society that gets together. Maybe there is every 19 years and rewrites the Constitution based on things at the moment. But the argument was essentially one generation can't bind another. So you could say, well, one of the fr- one of the f- founders believed this, but he's not a framer because he wasn't at the Constitutional Convention. So- yes, well, he lost that argument generally, but yes, it is. They did talk about these issues at the time. No, and it's there's this amazing passage from Ulysses Grant, which I've quoted on the show before, which I I was going to try to find, but I can't because my Google is too slow. Where he, where Grant says it is absurd to think that we should be bound. Here we are in eighteen, you know, sixty five that we should be bound by what people who you know had no concept of electricity who had no concept of you know the 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 steam engine who who you know who who had all these ideas that aren't congruent with where we are today that we should be bound by their position but we have uh cursed ourselves we've 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 given ourselves like a constitution in amber and it's going to crush the country and this court is can is determined to you know make that amber uh, to burnish that amber and but by no means ever to break it yeah i mean it is really interesting 
to watch that idea. And, you know, Grant is an especially salient person to bring up here because he's speaking right before Reconstruction, which is a kind of second founding era. And one of the kind of amazing things about this court and its view of, you know, history and tradition, which seems to me to just be like a much even vaguer, more manipulable version of originalism, right? So you don't even have original meaning is like pinned at 1787. Now you just have some idea of like the swath of history and tradition in which if you're Justice Alito, you can always find the examples you want. Um, But they haven't even settled whether they care the most about 1868, like the year that the 14th Amendment um, was enacted and ratified, or whether you throw back to the founding, even when you're talking about the 14th Amendment. And Justice Barrett wrote a concurrence last year in Dobbs where she was like, hmm, I just note that we haven't really settled on this. And in this case, it doesn't matter, but maybe we should think about this later. It's just kind of crazy that they haven't like even decided that part. I find some reassurance in the fact that Barrett and Kavanaugh and Roberts do seem to be like basically pragmatic. They're extremely conservative, but they also don't want to take the Supreme Court down some kind of suicidal path. And so it feels like they will, they're going to push the country in very conservative directions, but they are not going to push the country in very conservative directions that are so demented as, as uh, Alito and Thomas would, where they would probably let Zaki Rahimi have whatever guns he wanted. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Barrett, before she joined the Supreme Court, had an opinion that it was about basically, as I recall, like a white collar defendant and whether that person could have a gun. So there was no issue of dangerousness. And she found on his behalf that he did have a right to bear arms. But that's why I think she and others um, at the argument this week were putting a lot of weight on this category of dangerousness. Um And, you know, that does seem like it would give the states and Congress some leeway to legislate here. It's very different, of course, from having like an overall prohibition on handguns, um, which, you know, cities and some states used to have. But we're way past that. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are like me, not really having any cocktails. I'm on a I'm on an alcohol strike for reasons I can't really articulate. I'm just not drinking. But if you're having a (laughs) non-alcoholic cocktail with me, John, what would you be chattering about? Um, I've got a double-barreled, a French double-barreled historical chatter. That would be legal. That because because that was okay during the the era of the era of the founding. The French double-barreled rifles were were totally (laughs) used used very commonly for hunting. So please proceed. (laughs) Um, So the first the first one is about our dear friend Napoleon Um, when he returned when he returned from exile in eighteen fifteen. Um, the hat he wore, uh, which is made of beaver felt, it was a bicorn hat, um, probably the most famous symbol ever worn by a military leader. Um, and he, he attached a little bit, a bit of colored ribbon known as a cockade to this hat. And one of them is about to sell for upwards of $850,000, which, um, uh, is just amazing. But I really, what, what, that's what lured me into this was the auction of this. Um, there are only, I think there were about 200 Napoleon hats at one point that he wore and they were, um, and they're only, I don't know, like 15 or so now. But then what I, what I wondered is, or what I didn't know is that he wore the hat as everybody probably has a mental image of Napoleon in his bicorn hat. He wore it sideways. So most people wore it front to back. Um, and we can leave aside the uh, association of dictatorial leaders and their headwear. But um, 
just imagine like a person becomes so powerful by wearing their hat basically sideways. I mean, people do that with um, their baseball to- caps. You have one on right yeah, now. You well, could turn I mean, it sideways. It would look a little weird, but you could. It would look weird, but imagine then being, I mean, you could w- turn it sideways and you'd be a TikTok influencer and, you know, you'd maybe get some a couple of fancy pars- cars to park in your garage. But I mean, to be like a world leader and wear your hat sideways. Anyway, but the theory for why he wore his head hat sideways, there are two of them that seem to rise up out of the mythology. And one is that it made it easier to talk to his men in battle because you didn't have this <laughs> enormous front piece of your the bill, essentially, of the Beaverfeld hat. And um, so he turned it sideways. And the other is that obviously it made him easy to recognize in battle. Um, so that's one of my French. Um, and the other is, this is truly one of my favorite things about um history is when there is history that's just sitting somewhere for hundreds of years, untouched, ready to be discovered. And for basically 200 years, there were these bundles of of letters of longing and love written by women and wives and mothers to their um, sons and husbands who were participating in the Seven Years' War, which started in um, 1753 between the French and the British. And they were just discovered. Basically, a, um, a research historian asked the National British National Archives, can I look in that box? And what he found were um, 100 letter, letter or 100 or so letters from members of this French frigate, the Galite. Um, and they were letters sent to these sailors from, um, as I said, their wives and their mothers that never reached them. And they'd been bound up for more than 200 years. And so... They're all these just these sweet, you know, the, this one um, uh, this one woman writes to her husband and says, you know, I could spend all night writing to you. I am forever your faithful wife. Have a good evening, my dear friend. It's now midnight. I think it's time for me to rest. So the man to whom she wrote that survived, but she didn't by the time he never read that letter, of course. Um, and then one mother writes her son, I think about, I think more about you than you about me. In any case, I wish you a happy new year filled with blessings of the Lord. Uh, this was a mother to a son and she complained that he hadn't written her back, which is another more proof that things don't change over time. Um, she also died, but he did as well. Anyway, so these, I think these letters might be online now, um, but just all of that humanity kind of bound up and hidden for 200 years now has been now sees the light of day emily what's your chatter oh my god i have such a trivial chatter compared to that uh i since the COVID era have been doing jigsaw puzzles at my house which i find kind of embarrassing but i really like doing them and i especially i recently through a friend discovered these liberty puzzles have you guys seen these they're wood And they have these very, very intricate shapes. They're like thicker than a cardboard jigsaw puzzle, like significantly thicker. And some of the puzzle shapes are like, um, you know, a little girl holding a broom or like a witch or a cat or a wheel. They're just made in these very intricate way. Um, They're also really expensive, um, which is a drag. One of the things I like about my jigsaw puzzle habit is that jigsaw puzzles normally cost like $20 to $30. And I think the Liberty ones are more like $80 to over $100. So I am not going to develop a whole habit of Liberty puzzles. But if you like puzzles and you don't know about these puzzles, they are really cool and they would make a good gift. What I love about this, Emily, is they're tactile. I mean, the wooden pieces 
Oh man, I could just basically play around with them without even connecting them. But I misunderstood. I thought what you meant was that the that the entire image of the puzzle was a was a, a girl dancing. No, the individual pieces are not those misshapen, weird things that look like an egg that got dropped wrong. They are actually themselves pieces of art. Fabulous. Yes. Although some of the puzzles also don't have like a full rectangle. They're like, like we have one that's a stork and it's like the puzzle is the shape of the stork. Um, but yes, the individual pieces have all these intricate patterns. My chatter, if anything, is even more trivial. Your chatter was not trivial, Emily. Your chatter was filled with beauty and joy in the world and Excitement. Oh my God! Yes, you, it's boy. I am buoyed up. I am absolutely you. levitating. Uh, that. My chatter is. Uh, so I saw this item in Hey DC, the CityCast DC newsletter, but it pointed to a story in Washingtonian, the 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 city magazine here in DC, uh, by Jessica Sidman. Why is Dallas on the cover of this DC guidebook? And it's a guide to this phenomenon, which is apparently there are now AI generated travel guidebooks and there are some for DC. And so Jessica Sidman got them. And what's in these AI? I know we should be alarmed by AI. It's developing so quickly. Uh, We should be uh, chastened that these writers of real travel books are, you know, now being co-opted by these fake AI travel books. But you're thrilled. You have a gleam in your eye. No, but it's so funny. There is, it is so so funny the stuff that is in it like boating is allowed on rock creek lake which is located in the park's northern region there is no rock creek there's nothing called rock creek lake (laughs) they just imagined rock creek lake don't miss out on the creamy and soothing tastes of the iconic dc half and half (laughs) a blend of sweet tea and lemonade it's like what first of all sweet tea and lemonade would not be creamy but it's not a drink that doesn't exist my favorite one is this. Apparently, one of the big DC uh, festivals is the Walla Walla Sweet Onion Celebration. The celebration commemorates the legendary Walla Walla Sweet Onions. <laughs> like for Washington DC, it's just awesome. Anyway, I love I love when AI goes wrong, and the, these uh, DC guidebooks. Also, they're all written by imaginary people: Jorge B. Smith, William Jose, Jessica J. White. Uh, they're not real people. Listeners, you have uh, real chatters, however, and uh, you email them to us at gabfestislate.com, something that you're talking about. And this week's chatter comes to us from Massachusetts, or it's about Massachusetts, from Sheila McIntyre. Hello, GabFest. Sheila McIntyre from Ottawa, Ontario here. My cocktail chatter involves a news story about a group of wealthy summer residents of Truro, Massachusetts on Cape Cod who conspired to commit massive voter fraud by switching their legal voting residents simply so they could vote in the town meeting on October 21st. Why? To vote against the building of new affordable housing. The nimbyism is strong in this rich beachy enclave in true blue liberal Massachusetts as they mounted a collective effort to essentially overthrow town government. Sophie Manchafir, a cub reporter for the wonderful local newspaper, the Provincetown Independent, broke the story. A lawyer with the Commonwealth, Dan Sullivan, said that in 46 years practicing election law, he couldn't remember a situation when non-residents were trying to take over a town. Summonses are imminent. The Board of Registrars will hear challenges to almost half of the new voter registrations, and the town meeting was postponed to November 2nd. Stay tuned. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. 
Julie, by the way, worked very hard at the polls because Julie is a really good citizen. So I would just like to note that Julie, in addition to being our researcher, was working at the polls in Colorado because she is not just doing awesome research, but helping democracy grease the wheels of democracy. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations and Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio. For Slate, please email your conundrums to us at slate.com slash conundrums. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? Emily wants to talk about the Trump civil trial, where all the Trump, the Trump boys testified, then former President Trump testified, then Ivanka trust testified this week. Um, why do you want to talk about this, Emily? Uh, well, I'm, happy, or John. I'm anxious to talk about it, too. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of incredible that this is happening. So, you know, before this, this is a trial. The attorney general of New York um, has accused the Trumps of running a fraudulent em- enterprise, the Trump organization in New York State. And she is seeking damages, but also the penalty that they would never be able to do business in New York State again, which is huge. I mean, this is Trump's entire business empire, the kind of foundation of his whole self-image. And the accusations are that he so vastly inflated the worth of various properties that he was intentionally defrauding the people of New York. Before the trial started, the judge ruled that, yes, indeed, he had committed fraud. Uh, or I should say that the Trump organization had committed fraud. And so this entire trial is really about the penalties. It's important, though, that the Trumps are testifying because in a civil matter, as opposed to a criminal matter, if you don't testify, the court can hold it against you. So they have a really strong incentive to show up and try to explain themselves. And yet, in various ways, they are just showing such contempt for any kind of like accountability, basic idea that when you sign a document, you're supposed to have some sort of responsibility for its contents. Um, I just think it's been kind of incredible to watch them march through. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.